Friends, colleagues, and voyeurs, welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. We're your hosts, I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Dr. Taylor Coet from the University of Western Ontario. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Uh, did I did I hit the pronunciation right on that? Was that yeah, good? If, sure. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> I I, uh, I suffer from, uh, from people not uh, being able to pronounce my last name, so I'm particularly sensitive to it. So, uh, <laughs> oh, like... It's it's bad for me. Uh, it, my name's not phonetically spelt, so it's a complete train wreck. Um, so don't even worry about it. I just stopped caring. So, so, so what is it? What is it? Give it to us. Uh, give it to us. Kahoot. Here. Kahoot. Okay. It is Kahoot. Oh, so we're in Kahoots. Yeah, yeah. I get that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, damn it, I wasn't original on it. I'm sorry. No, afraid not. <laughs> oh, that's too bad. Um, Taylor, why don't you uh, why don't you jump in? What are we What are we going to be chatting about today? What is your work center around? Uh, I guess I study what porn is and how it might affect the way we think, feel, and behave. And pretty much, well, any question that falls within that general theme, I deal with. Oh, cool. Okay. So we're going to really dive into uh, pornography and the psychological effects of pornography today then. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Or the the lack of effects or the little we know about the effects. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Equally as important. Absolutely. Yeah. So Taylor, uh, what, what is porn? You said, you said you define what porn is. So what is porn? Yeah. Uh, whew. uh we could talk <laughs> about that for probably a, an hour or two, uh, or at least I could. Um, so porn is one of those concepts that people like to debate, particularly in academic channels. And there are a lot of different variations of similar themes. And I've spent quite a bit of time trying to parse them out, think about it. And at some point, I think for empirical work anyway, we just have to assert a definition and go with it because um, the, the, the diversity in, in con, uh, conceptualizations is really just kind of fucked up the literature completely. Okay. So <laughs> uh, I guess I would say that uh, most people treat porn as an explicit representation of nudity and or sexual behavior, particularly if it involves genitals. Um, but that's my take on it. I right. So it has to generally, I mean, on average, porn includes genitals in it, but it doesn't necessarily have to. Is, is Correct. That right? Yeah. I, I would definitely say so. I can show you some things that you would be like, yeah, that's that's <laughs> porn. And there are no genitals yeah. anywhere. So absolutely. That makes sense. And I, I definitely see that. First off, let's just kind of uh, get into what led you to be interested in this kind of research. What was the what was the draw into you know researching porn and how? I mean, I don't imagine there's a lot of people out there that are actually effectively looking at pornography as you are. Probably a dozen, maybe a few more than that. Uh, I like yeah. to blame my mother, actually. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I'm sure she loves that. <laughs> no, I'm not sure she's heard it yet. Um, she doesn't always follow what I do online, so which is probably for the best. Uh, so I actually, <laughs> I actually started life as a forensic scientist in, uh, in my undergraduate years. And it just like, out of curiosity, I took this, this human sexuality class and I was talking to my mother about it one day. There was a, a term assignment and it was kind of open as to what we would, we could look into. And she said, you know, I'm really interested in this idea of porn addiction she was a uh, medical doctor and she was seeing more and more patients coming in that had problems with, with porn use. So she said, you know, like, what do you know about that? 
And I was like, mom, I, I don't think that's a thing. So I don't know. I'll look into it. <laughs> and uh, that was like a long time ago, uh, early yeah. 2000s. And the literature then was really underdeveloped. And there wasn't much to be said. Uh, but it really got me thinking about uh, porn research and how it's done and how it's done poorly and how it could be done better. And I guess I just found a spot where I could make things better. Yeah, absolutely. And so you talking about porn research, I'm sure a lot of people are curious uh, that are listening right now is what does it look like? like? What are the different ways that people have used or studied porn? Well, I'd say it's fairly narrow minded in a sense. Uh, we've looked at a lot of different topics, but there is this pervasive harm focus. So mm. no matter what we sort of apply porn to, we assume that it is an active and powerful causal agent of change, right? It mm. does things to people. And those yeah. things are almost always bad things. Mm. Right. Yeah. Is yeah, there I, evidence to support that? Well, uh, if you consider evidence published peer review articles, sure, absolutely. Uh, what I'd point out, though, is that most of that is a flaming pile of garbage. So <laughs> I don't know. It depends on your perspective, I guess. No, absolutely. I, 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 sort of one of the reasons that I, I bring this up is that recently we uh, we chatted with uh, Dr. Zach Walsh uh, from the University of British Columbia, Okanagan, talk about um, cannabis use. And, uh, you know, obviously there's a huge amount of stigmatization surrounding cannabis use. And pornography, I think, is, is very much in that same category. Oh, you're absolutely right there. So so with that said, you know, you, you said that there is... Uh, you know, flaming piles of garbage in terms of literature, uh, <laughs> but um, you know, there. What other evidence is there at this point? Well, I guess if you spend the time in liter literature, you can find support for any position you want to take. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think is most important to understand about it is that it is varied. There are people that are identifying sort of positive consequences of porn. A lot more people identifying neg negative consequences of porn. And relatively few of us that are taking a step back and asking the question, like, is any of this valid or useful research? Um, is mm -hmm. any of it true or accurate? And I kind of fall, I think, in, in the last camp, at least most recently. With whether or not it's accurate. I, I think that's really interesting. I, for me, when, I, when you're talking about these negative consequences and what I've, I mean, the stigma that I'm aware of is, you know, the idea that pornography use uh, will negatively impact your relationships. It'll like reduce sex drive or, or things like that. Uh, are those the common uh, assumptions that are being made or are things that are being yeah. tested for? Yeah. So right now, one of the, the dominant sort of themes in the literature is looking at the effects of porn on, on relationships, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we inevitably study all of this with cross-sectional correlational designs, uh, which means inferring causation is a little bit tricky. And mm -hmm. we tend to not think very carefully about the phenomenon. So, for example, I can tell you that if I were to survey a bunch of men and ask them about their porn use and ask them about any metric of relationship quality, I would almost certainly find a negative association between those two things. But that's not all that meaningful because I failed to ask what that man's sexual partner was doing at the same time. And right. once you do, you start to see a very different sort of pattern. So it turns out in my research across a number of studies now, we find that if you find couples where one partner uses porn and the other partner doesn't, their relationship is not all that functional. 
It doesn't matter if it's the man using porn or the woman using porn. Typically, it's a man that's using porn and a woman not, but there are some cases where it's the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. Now, if you find couples, however, where both partners are using porn to a similar degree, their relationship is just as functional as couples that are not using porn at all. So it's a matter of them both buying into the approach of how they use porn and maybe consume sexual content? Yeah, I think it actually has nothing to do with the porn at all. And this is what I get back to when I say that people tend to have this assumption that porn is this potent causal agent, that it changes the way you are, mm -hmm. right? So the assumption yeah. is if a man is using porn, it's changing him in such a way that it ruins his relationship, right? Mm -hmm. But I think my, it might be, and what my research often suggests is that it's other things. So we know from a huge line of relationship research that similarity in attitudes and in interests and in preferences is related to relationship functioning and attraction. If you're dissimilar in interests, you have a shit relationship. You tend not <laughs> to be attracted to each other in the first place. But if you get past that stage, um, then you don't have a very functional relationship. Like imagine your partner turned to you one day and said, hey, I uh, think Donald Trump is totally legit and uh, deserves to be the president in the next election. <laughs> I'm guessing both of you are relatively liberal and it probably wouldn't, yeah. it wouldn't fly, right? Right. <laughs> so what we often forget is that porn is not just a cause, it's a consequence. And it's related to a host of other variables that it's not necessarily influencing, that it might be the product of things like sex drive, things like liberal sexual attitudes, right? Uh, yeah, tolerance of sexual diversity. So if you have a porn mm -hmm. user, you, a porn user, sorry, is, is very different on a lot of uh, these sort of variables than a non-user. And those factors alone might simply explain sort of what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. And just getting back to the issue, when I said that men's porn use is typically related to poor relationship functioning while women's use is not, I think that has to do largely with the fact that men typically use porn uh, more often than women and are more likely to use porn. So if you are you know, in a relationship and a man uses porn, there's a relatively low likelihood that his female partner uses porn. However, if you're in a relationship where a woman uses porn, there's a very high likelihood the, uh, the male partner uses porn. So male porn use mm -hmm. on average is indicative of a discrepancy in sort of these sexual values, whereas female porn use is not. And when we look at right. female porn users, we often find that female porn use is positively associated with relationship functioning or not at all associated with relationship functioning. So I think what we're just seeing there is just a lack of careful consideration of what porn means and uh, why it's being used. One of the things that you that you mentioned right off the bat uh, was that there is, you know, not that many people out there doing this kind of research. And, and you've talked um, to this point, at least, about uh predominantly heterosexual couples. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think that there's, do you think that the diversity within uh, the research field, uh, being that it's rather homogeneous, there's not a lot of variation, I imagine, in terms of the people who are doing this kind of work, um, and the types of literature and the types of research that's being produced, do you think that's kind of driving some of this relationship? Or uh, I'd, I'd just love to get your thoughts on that. Well, just to, to clarify some things, there are certainly some scholars that devote attention to non-hetero relationships and porn use. And I think that's some of the most interesting literature that's coming out sometimes. They are not, I'd say, typical of people that work in this area. I think a lot more of it is focused on sort of the assumption of cisgendered heterosexuality. 
uh, a good part of it right now is actually being done among um, or within the adolescent literature. So concerns about adolescent well-being and health. And a lot of people that contribute to the literature aren't necessarily committed to porn as a subject area. They are committed to something that they think might be related to porn and might throw out one or two studies related to it, uh, but they're not necessarily porn researchers, quote unquote. Right. And okay. it's those ones that are, I think, most infuriating to me because they are acting on a lot of sort of um, internal assumptions about what porn is and what it does and aren't necessarily thinking as carefully about the, the construct. Yeah, that's fair. That makes a lot of sense. I think uh, something that I'm kind of interested in trying to get more into like the nitty gritty de details of these porn users. Um, I, I, I want to say um, not all porn users are created equal. <laughs> so so sure. they might be using porn in different ways. And there's so there's such a mass, uh, massive amount of variance in what, ki what kind of porn there is out there. So yep. is, there, is there work on who is consuming what types of uh, genres of porn yeah. and what's the most common, what's yeah, the most popular. Sure. And that's, that's a really excellent question. It's one I get from like lay audiences all the time. They'll tell me, Hey, how can you talk about porn? It's so diverse, uh, a mm. sort of media and people might be attracted to different things, use different things. You got to factor that in and that's complicated. Unfortunately, the field does that very, very poorly. And right. we know next to nothing mm. about users of porn and how that intersects with preferences of porn use like in terms of underdeveloped areas within the field that is the big one that we know very little about and i think it's partially a function of this this assumption that porn is an active causal agent we don't talk about porn as an outcome we talk yeah. about porn as you know an independent variable that is causing something else so the focus is really messed up um so what I can say is that there are some studies like people do pick at this and, and we have learned a couple things, but I think we could do a lot better and a lot more. Um, mm -hmm. So off the top, uh, we do not have a good way of differentiating genres of porn. Mm -hmm. Like that's an area of extreme interest of mine that I've been sort of picking at, haven't published anything yet, but developing sort of on the sidelines for a couple of years now is that we don't have a good way of taxonomizing content categories of porn. Um, mm -hmm. So most people who do it rely on the sort of categories you'll see in a typical uh, website or predating websites, what you would see if you walked into a porn shop. And those <laughs> I think are, are crude. Uh, they can be useful for a couple simple questions, but aren't particularly um, insightful. Um, one of the big things that comes up a lot in the, the literature is the concern that porn is contributing to sexual aggression. And there's certainly yeah. genres of porn that you would think would be more likely to influence sexual aggression because they depict acts of, of sexual aggression. And there's a sort of general theory that uh, what the monkey sees, the, the monkey will do. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, why not? Uh, so we could talk about, about violence and aggression, but even there it becomes fairly complicated and not really well conceptualized. So what constitutes violence is under a lot of debate with respect to depictions in porn. Um, some content analyses of porn would tell you that nine or sorry, not 98, 88% of porn is sexually violent. And then other content 88. analyses, 88% other will, others will say it's less than 2%. So <laughs> Good we, God. we, we know with some certainty that between, <laughs> two and 88% of porn is, is sexually violent. 
And a lot of it comes down to how they're actually defining violence and what counts, quote unquote. Right. So for the purposes of of sexual aggression research, is consensual spanking a good example of sexual violence? All right. One partner says, spank my ass. And the other partner does it. Is that sexual violence? Some people say yes. Other people say, well, yeah, but it's not really relevant for understanding sexual aggression, which is typically conceptualized as a a coercive, uh, non-consensual behavior, right? So, yeah, right off the bat, we have problems just deciding what it is and deciding what counts and what doesn't count, what's psychologically meaningful. We can, if you look at the really clear stuff, there was an older study in 2001 by Anthony Bogart, uh, his PhD dissertation, actually, which was kind of interesting, where he had a bunch of men come into a lab and sat them down in front of one hour's worth of personality questionnaires. And they just filled them all out. Yeah, it's brutal, right? (laughs) And at the end of the study, he was like, so I'm doing this other unrelated study, right? And I'm looking for participants for that. Uh, It involves looking at porn. Would you be interested? And first off, a huge block. I think it was almost half of the initial participants were like, no, I I don't need to look at porn for extra credit. I'm done. (laughs) But uh, among the ones that did, uh, that said that, yeah, I'd be interested. Um, he gave them a list of different um, porn videos. So this was back in the 90s before the internet was popular. And mm-hmm. so he gave them a list of 14 videos that had a title and a brief description of each video. And two of the videos were clearly non-consensual sexual violence. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the extreme stuff. Two of them were uh, pedophilic, right? Wow. And his question was, okay, of this list... What would you be interested in seeing? Because I want to make sure that I have the tape available for you because they were literally using tapes. And uh, so people <laughs> would, would choose, right, uh, what they would yeah. be interested in seeing. Now, he never brought them back for that second session. He was just interested in their choice. What would you choose in a free choice environment where you had a list mm-hmm. of, of options, some of which were very yeah. antisocial, um, sexual aggression, pedophilia? And uh, first of all, he found that very few men chose those options. Uh, I think it was about 5% of the sample, 5 to 10. I think it might have been 10% for aggression, 5% for, for pedophilia, but I, I, I might be mistaking those. Mm. But it relatively few compared to the, the total sample. His interest wasn't so much in how many people chose it, because, like, why would you look at things that are obviously illegal? Um, yeah. But who would decide to choose those options? And what are they mm-hmm. like? And how are they different from people that didn't choose those options? And right. so he found that people that chose the more antisocial options tended to be higher in things like psychopathy, right? Mm. They tended to be lower in things like social desirability, meaning they didn't give a fuck what other people thought of them, <laughs> yeah. right? So uh, they tended to be high. Yeah. yeah, it does. It makes a lot of sense. They also tended to Good. be high in sexual interest. And I should say, among those videos, there were two videos that weren't porn. There were things like uh, Best of Saturday Night Live or hockey's greatest hits or something like that and the people that chose those they tended to be low in sexual interest right right yeah um but uh, the ones that chose the antisocial content tended to be antisocial people weird yeah it's funny how that lines up right so um getting back to why the the literature is such a shit show when we measure things even like people's use of violent porn or pedophilic porn and we find that it's correlated with sexual offenses we're like ah porn causes aggression well does it? Because the people that are using that are fundamentally different, probably, 
from the people yeah. that are not. So how do we know it's the porn and not the fact that they are psychotic um, right. or psychopathic rather Then mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So what are we really talking about? It's a yeah, real I mean, chicken and egg situation. Absolutely. I think it's like, it's a, a, the way I see it at least is you're self-selecting content that you're interested in seeing. And it's not, I think that's not the content itself is not what's driving all these things. Well, it, it may be, but it's really hard to, to dis dissociate those two yeah. things in correlational research, right? Absolutely, yeah. And yeah. taking a step back, like you might say, well, that's why we have experiments. We can randomly expose X to Y and Y to X. Mm -hmm. And the problem with those sorts of studies in, in, the, in applied settings is that they can tell you about what might be, but they don't necessarily tell you about what is. If you yeah. show a bunch of people violent porn that would never go out and seek violent porn in the world, is that meaningful? Right. It's not, uh, that's what we call like ecological, ecological validity, right? Exactly. Like, did it actually happened in the real world. Mm. Yeah. Uh, opposed to being in that experimental room. <laughs> right. So is it, is yeah. it, yeah. Is it a, a, a sort of a product of this, this strange experimental paradigm or is it meaningful in the real world? Exactly. And likewise, I, I mean, another question for you, Taylor is, uh, you know, when you're doing these studies, you have people coming into these labs or in most cases it's it's within the labs right that you guys are doing these experiments because you're trying to manipulate uh, these things or is there a yes lot is there no. is there in the in the real world you know how how can we get at people's behind closed door uh you know approaches to using porn versus what would i would look at whenever i'm told to look at it by a, a research assistant yeah yeah so in terms of the sort of research methods we need we don't really have something that's off the shelf that you can look at and say hey this makes a lot of sense in this particular situation so we tend to rely on either experimental designs that will show people things that they may or may not ever seek out or correlational designs that tell you what they seek out, but they don't tell you necessarily what is causing what, right? So mm -hmm. we, we don't have a method that sort of fills that gap. And um, to add just a further layer of complication to everything, there is, I would say, reasonable... Uh, evidence to suggest that our measures and survey research, so how much porn do you use, what do you watch, etc., is not all that um, attuned to what people are actually doing. That may not actually right. reflect what they are doing in reality, and it may speak more to what their perceptions are of what they are doing. Yeah, and that's never really, I mean, we see that in a lot of research Anytime someone's reporting or just anytime someone's reporting on what they do, that's not necessarily hand in hand with what they actually do. Yes, uh, it doesn't no, act, exactly. It's not a, it's, it's not a one to one, right? What you think right. you do or what you want to be doing is not the actual behavior. I'd love yeah. to go. I, I, I think I'm a fit person. I work out all the time. But when you check what I've done this last week, you realize I don't I don't work out that often. <laughs> that's exactly it. And when we're looking at like related things, like how much do you use the Internet? How much are you on your smartphone? The correlation between self-reports and actual observed behavior recorded by the devices that people are using is like 0.3 at the high end, right? Oh, right. Going so down 30, from there. Yeah. That's not so terribly 30%. accurate. <laughs> yeah. Like, it, so, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I see that point. I see where the complexity of uh, your work at looking at porn is really, it's, it's tough because, you know, asking someone what they usually watch or you know how often do you watch porn this is associated depending on the person they might have this stigma right they might not want to be reporting these things yep. and there also might be uh depending on the person they might inflate their numbers or or yep. you know uh they'll change them to be the social desirability is what you're talking about before <clears throat> yeah um, but that can that can modify what the answers are and it's not really 
getting at what's going on behind the closed doors. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So like it's it's a huge mess. And unless we live in a society uh, where we can actually track people's online behaviors in this day and age and compare that to their <laughs> survey responses, we're never really going to get a good answer. Right. And it's well, one of the big challenges for sure. There's always the uh, the meme that kind of makes its way around the internet, like, you know, the FBI agent assigned to you watching everything you do on the <laughs> right. internet has to go home and just bleach his eyes because he can't believe it, all the nasty crap he's been watching. Yeah. <laughs> so somebody out there that... might have the data. But oh, the don't. NSA certainly has the data. I have, I have no question. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, how that relates to how people self-report, we don't really know. And one of the big things that I'm pushing for right now is that we need to start thinking more carefully about our self-report metrics and trying to validate them against actual observed behavior. And it's a hard thing to do, and we'll never get it perfect, but we can at least try and, and get a sense of how accurate or inaccurate our, our answers actually are. Uh, if we can partner with things like um, Pornhub or XHamster or YouPorn that have a, a membership base, we can start to see how self-report scores correlate to actual use. Or we could put people up in like Bogart sort of design, right? Give people an option. Do you want to look at porn in this study? Do you not want to look at porn in this study and see how that relates to people's reported porn use? And that'll give us some sense as to whether or not we're actually capturing the people we think we are in these studies. Yeah, certainly. I think that's a great point because I've, I've seen a lot of, uh, I mean, Pornhub does some very basic uh, statistics on what the, what the uses are, right? Reporting We've talked on about it on yep. the show. Yeah, and I think that's, there's such a gold mine of data that could be used yeah. uh, so it'd be great oh, for, to, sure. for you to be able to have that right yeah. yeah it would be absolutely wonderful um i haven't actually approached them about it for a number of reasons one of which is that it would destroy my career but somebody has to <laughs> at some point yes. do it somebody has to fall on the sword <laughs> yeah exactly I'm, I'm not sure i'm ready to do that just yet but uh yeah. get tenureship then you can do it well, that's the thing, right? People are already accusing me on the internet of taking money from big porn, and that's what they call it, from the porn industry, to defend them. And I'm not. It would be great, actually, if I did, because I would not be living in a near poverty. Um, but yeah. I, I, yeah. So if I actually, though, do partner, even in a legitimate way with a porn company, it's just going to feed those rumors and scuttle me. Of course. Oh, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. You, you couldn't. You could not reasonably extricate yourself from that situation without uh, coming across as having sort of bias. Yeah, yeah bias. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, and that makes sense. That's that's research. That is the plight of research, right? The, yeah. the people that have all the big money are the ones that will want certain findings to come out, right? And that's oh, that's what sure. makes sense. Uh, it's obviously if you partner with them, they they wouldn't want you reporting that porn's bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Taylor, yeah. I have I have a question um, that's I think somewhat related here. What about what about individuals who? Because we were talking about earlier the definition of pornography, um, but there's also sort of this prevalence, uh, especially digitally. Um, for content that I that I don't think would technically be pornographic, given your definition, but is certainly sort of erotic, um, and more socially acceptably erotic, uh, even. You know, has anybody done work on that, or is that something that might be influencing these other findings about people self-reporting, uh, you know, pornographic type habits? Sure. Um, how should I answer this? Uh, Nathaniel Lionheart, I think that's how you pronounce his last name. He's done some theorizing with respect to what he calls sexually suggestive media, which I think falls kind of in the, the ballpark of what you're talking about. Um, sure, yeah. I think he has some good ideas. I think 
his specifics are often completely wrong, but um, he's at least sort of talking about that that sort of gray area. Yeah, I think the one thing to keep in mind with respect to that that idea is that almost all of the theoretical orientations about porn use take this approach that what you see in the porn influences how you are and how you behave, right? So to the extent that your mildly erotic, non-pornographic media consumption has a common script, it would be assumed that you would adopt that script and it would influence everything downstream of that. So that may be the case. I guess the question I have for you is what would be the common script there? Well, yeah, that's that's a great question. <laughs> I don't have an answer for you. Um, you know, it kind of come. I guess that question came to mind because uh, Drake and I are in a fantasy football pool, and and it's not uncommon if you're you know catching up on football news, they'll have like slideshows. Certain websites are certainly more egregiously uh, egregious of this, but you know you'll be like scrolling through, reading about you know, oh, Chris Carson ran for 200 yards and 80 touchdowns. And you're like, oh, sick. And then it'll be like a cheerleader. And you're like, well, what? <laughs> like, like how is, I don't know. I, I guess that's sort of where the question kind of originated. But this idea yeah, no, of, of it, seeking out. It makes out... sense. But uh, I guess, what is the uniformity in that media experience that you might expect mm -hmm. would influence the way you think, feel, and behave? And yeah. there are, might be some things like the, some people would argue it, it suggests the sexual availability of women particularly. So maybe that would be something you might want to look into. Um, it might sort of reinforce uh, beauty standards, right? Um, yeah. But then again, those lines of research uh, are kind of shaky. Like when it comes to social comparison theory, you guys are familiar with that? Yes. Uh, but so the but for, our viewers, so... for our viewers, you could right. maybe give a quick recap. So it's yeah. the idea that we compare ourselves to other people. And if those other people are doing better than us, we feel pretty shitty about ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, if they're doing worse than us, conversely, we feel pretty good. Like, uh, I don't know <laughs> if anyone watches Jerry Springer or if that's still even culturally relevant, but <laughs> that always made me feel pretty good about my life. Um, that's good. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like a downward social comparison, right? So that applies yeah. not only to people in your, your world, but also to people in media people that you see elsewhere and there's this assumption that because everybody's pretty in porn they have huge breasts big cocks um, are fit and uh, attractive that it's going to make you feel bad about your sex life and there's a couple studies going back to the 80s that suggest that people who for example are shown playboy centerfolds men who are shown playboy centerfolds um, think worse things about their partners so they're less in love with their partners afterwards, they're less satisfied with them, and so on. Uh, but I have a colleague that completely independent of me, actually before she really even knew me, uh, replicated one of those studies um, with a much larger sample, and guess what? Found no effect whatsoever. Replicated it again, found no effect. Replicated a third time, found no effect. So hmm. is it like <laughs> we? the problem with our... our our scientific process, and this is true in porn work as well as you know across the social sciences and behavioral sciences, we like to award um, publications to interesting stories, dynamic, compelling narratives, rather than accurate knowledge. And yeah. so I ask you, like, her study is done, I think, much better than the original. She finds no effect across three replications. 
but people have heard of the original and that's what they believe so that's where we're at well yeah. we'll we'll do what we can to yeah. dispel that belief you'll uh we'll post that up with the episode information on our website so brainbuzzpodcast.com uh track down this episode and there we will have a link or at least the reference uh, to that paper so if you're interested you can go back and and read uh, god's honest truth on that one so a question I have for you, Taylor, uh, is uh, at the outset you mentioned, uh, or at some point you've mentioned that uh, people have been accusing you of being a shill for, for big porn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that's fun. Yeah, yeah, I'd imagine so. I mean, uh, I, I guess I'm fortunate and nobody really hates on my work, um, so that's good. Uh, I guess uh, maybe if somebody hated on it, it would mean somebody was reading it. So maybe that would be a good thing. I don't know. But what I'm getting, what I'm sort of getting at is, is this sort of hate on for your work? Is this a bunch of pearl clutching? And is it something that you can sort of, to use the term of the day, turn around and say, okay, boomer and just move on? Or is this, is this coming from, <laughs> is this coming from uh, sort of multiple angles and, and different, um, different demographics perhaps oh i i definitely go with the latter over the the former um a lot of it i think is coming from millennials even if they're they're fed by uh by other people there are it's hating porn is an easy thing to do let me just put it that way um if you're morally um sort of aligned with any of the judeo-christian values porn is a terrible thing so you have that camp right and then there's another one that's actually much more liberal in most issues that kind of comes out of a particular brand of feminism that sort of grew out of the late 70s and, and early 80s, radical feminism. And they've had a, a particular hate on for porn use. So you capture both liberal and conservative demographics. Um, I've been reading about the history of sexual imagery for a long time. And what you tend to see are these cycles of, of boom and bust of, of repression and liberalization. And the nineties, I would argue were, were kind of a period of, of, of liberalization. Uh, we had the rise of the internet. Uh, a lot of the porn um, sort of acceptance that we're seeing sort of took place during that period. Um, it became more and more mainstream. And I think we're seeing, in part, a reaction to that in the last decade or so, um, as people are starting to question whether or not uh, what they've been doing with their lives is appropriate. And outside of the previous feminist concerns, the previous moral Christian concerns, we now have concerns about sexual dysfunction and relationship function, relationship function. so things that are sort of uh, not necessarily aligned with moral or political views, uh, but things that are more uh, aligned with uh, yeah, individual concerns. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of stuff that sort of piles into it. And, um, I think it's, it's understandable that many people are not too fond of this, this category of media. I, I think it's beautiful that you're bringing all of these groups together on one topic. People, this isn't my term, but people have used the term strange bedfellows to describe the sort of alliance of groups <laughs> and people that uh, crusade against porn and its access. Yeah. Which is yeah. uh, strange bedfellows being uh, almost ironic. Oh, absolutely. It's, yeah. Absolutely. I, I think it. it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think, uh, and I think we've talked about this with a couple other other guests, uh, sex researchers as well, is that you know, sex is such a, it's an interesting topic because there's always someone that has an opinion, uh, someone has an opinion either way. Uh, and 
it, there's so much division on this and there still remains this division between whether or not, uh, you know, expression of sexuality or porn use, those things just kind of go hand in hand. And it's, Definitely. it's such a hotly debated topic that I just, it's, it's hard to kind of go any other way without uh, the other end kind of pulling up evidence from, you know, old studies or new studies that, that, that counter exactly what you're saying. So I see why it's so complicated to get anywhere uh, in this, in this area. Yeah. People, uh, particularly in, in sort of my division of, of sexuality research, um, definitely fall into one of two extreme camps. They're either erotophiles that uh, mm -hmm. seem to produce evidence that porn isn't ruining the world or erotophobes that are producing evidence that it, it is. So you definitely see that um, with, with my field, for sure. Well, yeah. the, the history of, I mean, not that I know a lot, and you'll certainly be able to correct me, but correct me if I'm wrong, hasn't there been a long and tumultuous history of pornographic depiction in media of any form yes. going back to <laughs> millennia, right? Yes. So, oh, yeah. Like, uh, we've got artifacts from 10, 20,000 years ago, right, before we have written records of, of sexuality, whether they're carvings or paintings, etc., that have survived. Yeah, people have been representing sex for about as long as they've been representing anything, as far as we can tell. And, um, yeah, depending on the time period and the culture, it's either totally accepted or totally inhibited or partially accepted, and it kind of changes. So one of the things that I, I love to point people to is Pompeii. Are you guys familiar with Pompeii? Yes. So not, not enough, not enough to not need a recap. <laughs> all right. All right. Pompeii, Roman city, right? Uh, mm covered in volcanic ash around i think it was like 90 a.d um or ce whatever we say these days uh <laughs> shortly after jesus ale allegedly lived and died we'll just we'll put it there um so it covered in volcanic ash totally disappeared forgotten civilization everybody else moved on pompeii was buried for years and years and years so uh what was it like 1700s i think 18th century it was rediscovered the locals probably knew about it longer than that but eventually some like aspiring academic types in this new field of archaeology caught wind of it and they're like shit there's this whole buried roman city oh my god we should check that out and yeah. they started digging it up and what they found almost immediately was very concerning because there was porn everywhere like, <laughs> everywhere so they're unearthing sculptures, mosaics, paintings, um, metallic sort of pendants and jewelry. Um, I remember reading somewhere about um, sandals that had a message, follow me, carved into them, which we now ascribe to a prostitute leading a potential client to their place of mm -hmm. business. Um, so a whole bunch of sexual artifacts, explicit in public <laughs> places, um, and it was just everywhere. And a lot of the stuff was destroyed on the spot. At some point, cooler heads prevailed, and they're like, we should keep this, but nobody <laughs> can see it. Because this is sort of during the height of the Victorian era. And yeah. the concern was that it would morally damage women, children, and uneducated men. So they wanted to lock all of this away in cupboards, and they created these secret museums. So museums within museums that you had to have special privilege to access. And we still have those artifacts today. Some are in uh, Naples, uh, some are in, the, uh, uh, in Britain. And it, it, it's a really interesting sort of 
caption or not caption a uh, sort of window into what was going on in that period so for a long time scholars were thinking okay pompeii was destroyed because it was this hedonistic lascivious like shithole of a city <laughs> prostitute central right um, yeah, more yeah. recently, I think archaeologists that study the period and, and the region have agreed that, no, that's probably pretty typical of a Roman city of about that size during that period. What happened shortly after that period is that Christianity overtook Rome, and with it came the censoring of all of that imagery and those artifacts mm -hmm. and the mm -hmm. destruction of them. So what remained in Pompeii got expunged from the historical record that we have access to outside of Pompeii. Interesting. Yeah, that's, and it's... Yeah. Like people tell me, you know, porn isn't creating these new and more heinous and terrible sexual acts. Dude, it's all existed since the beginning of time. Um, you just have to know where to look for it. Yeah, since yeah. we started having sex, <laughs> yeah, people were talking much. about and trying to depict sex. <laughs> yeah, trying it makes to depict sense, it, right? Like trying to do crazier and crazier things. <laughs> like um, yeah. one of the, uh, I think, most artistically beautiful things to come out of Pompeii was uh, a sculpture of Pan and the goat. So it's Pan the Satyr having sex with a nanny goat, right? It's it's like mythical bestiality, and this was just a thing somebody had in their house. Like, hey, this is my yeah. sculpture. Yeah, that's brilliant. I, so, I love that. So, yeah. Ahead, no, I was just going to say, I think it's safe to say then it wasn't just that Pompeii was horned up. It was that the rest of history got expunged by changing, uh, changing attitudes and moral values. Um, yeah. And safe to say that... Um, if if you can find it online, it's probably been done already somewhere else historically That's before that. Kind of my yeah, kind of my point <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, at least in the West, right? And uh, there are similar sort of histories. I'm I'm less sort of aware of them because I focus mostly on on Western thinking and Western history. Um, but there are are other are, are other sort of societies that have had uh, sexual depictions that were very public, very commonly accessible, and sometimes very extreme. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've already kind of talked about misconceptions, but like, what are these? There's so many myths and misconceptions when it comes to porn, porn use. Yeah. Uh, what are like the most prevailing myths other than the fact that, you know, porn, porn will kill you or, yeah. uh, you know, you'll, you'll go to hell yeah. if you watch porn kind of thing. What yeah. are the other uh, big myths that you might might not be as commonplace, but people still, you know, right. think. Right. Well, it's, you know, I've been embedded in this literature for so long. I kind of I'm losing touch with what the average person <laughs> thinks about this subject. So right. uh, I'm not always necessarily the, the best source for these myths, but I, I true, do hear true. things from students. And mm -hmm. um, one of the ones I hear a lot and see sometimes in the media is that porn is as addictive as heroin. <laughs> <laughs> Deadly. Like, I, I'm not a neuroscientist. I can't speak <laughs> to the, the very specific points about why this is incredibly erroneous. <laughs> Uh, but I'm like, what the fuck are people thinking? Like, how is this a thing? Um, yeah, that's quite the comparison. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, I see it um, a lot in, in memes and images all over the internet. My, my students ask me about it. Um, the issue of porn addiction is, I think, really kind of just an interesting topic on its own. And yeah. that it would appear from my perspective that there's a lot of different things going on. And that porn probably doesn't have any intrinsically addictive qualities, but there are certainly people who struggle with it. And um, sometimes it's because they have general sort of impulse control problems. Yep. Uh, but other times, and this is, I think, the most fascinating stuff, is um, that they have sort of 
moral values that don't align with porn use, but they're attracted to using porn. So put yourself in a situation where you've been brought up to think that porn is terrible for whatever reason, like all of our cultural influences, for example. Yeah. Um, but you still like to use it. Yeah. You know you shouldn't do it, but it's fun and enjoyable and you look forward to doing it again. So <laughs> you're, you're stuck in this sort of tension between what you know you should be doing and what you, you are doing. Yeah, yeah. A lot of right? cognitive dissonance surrounding Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So it, it's basically a, a, a more specific model of, of cognitive dissonance. They call it uh, moral incongruence. Josh Grubbs has done uh, and Sam Perry have done quite a bit of work on this re recently, and it helps to explain the weird cases that clinicians are sometimes seeing where somebody comes into their office. They're like, I have a problem with porn. You need to help me. And they're like, well, tell me about your porn use. And they're like, well, I used it a few months ago and I really don't want to use it again. And yeah, like not all of the cases are like that, but some of them are. Some of these people are relatively infrequent users, but they're really concerned about their use anyway. Right. Right um so that's they one. used it yeah they used it months ago but they've been they haven't been able to stop thinking about it exactly they're worried they're <laughs> going to do it again and it makes yeah. it makes a hell of a lot of sense and to be honest my heart goes out to those people yeah um, it's almost like it's enjoyable <laughs> to, to <yeah>. watch porn <laughs> well so, yeah i can yeah. see why i can see why you'd feel that way too i mean i definitely would like if they're willing to be if they are that distressed about it it is it's quite sad that they you know they feel that way and they can't kind of parse that yeah they have well, that moral incongruence right just like even it beyond that, but like they're going to be struggling with things like temptation and they're mm -hmm. going to be, yeah, they're, they're, it's just going to be, that would be a hard life to live. And, yeah. and I, yeah, like I said, my heart really goes out to people that are in that situation. I'm never going to convince them to be a person like myself. Who's just like, yeah, there's some tits. It's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so that's difficult. Mm. We know like from, uh, neurological research that there's certain types of brain damage that can actually lead to such disinhibition of sexual impulses that people have sex with fire hydrants. Um, and to some extent that will emerge in, in, in porn use as well. Uh, and there's a, a variety of other things as well that can go on. So sometimes you can just be uh, somebody that's interested in using porn in a, a, a social situation that isn't really good for that. Mm, so if you took yeah. a person like myself, uh, but you transplanted me to a fundamentalist Christian upbringing in Texas in a non-university setting um, with a wife that doesn't um, approve of what I do. Like my life would be a fucking train wreck. It would be completely terrible. Uh, like I look at porn at work, wouldn't be able to do that. A lot of people lose their jobs over that. That's yeah. in my case, though, it actually makes me, I think, a a better at my job which makes is you diligent it makes me yeah, exactly exactly it makes me diligent yeah um so i've built a life around myself to some extent that accommodates my sexual interests but people mm -hmm. that don't are kind of in a in a context where their porn use can lead to a lot of bad life events and i totally yeah. get that um so the question is I... no go ahead uh, sorry yeah I'm, I'm i'm interested like it's just like my thought is you know people that use porn and similar to your example of the person that you know that was distressed about using it uh i could see how if someone's using porn in a couple like you said when the when a guy is using porn uh and they're ashamed of it if their partner finds out they're using porn oh, i know fuck. that you know there's the idea that they're like almost cheating you know yeah yeah uh, it's like it's uh infidelity in a way to be to be looking at other other uh men and other women people. online yeah yeah, yeah. so um that's a really good point to bring up um 
So in that case, where a man is ashamed of his own use and is using it, and a woman finds out who doesn't like it, that's a really good candidate couple for sex addiction and porn addiction, in that yeah. the man oh, thinks yeah. he has a problem, the woman thinks he has a problem, he's going to try and fix it to please her and to fix himself, uh, mm -hmm. and they're going to go seek treatment. Um, yeah, so that's that's totally a thing that can that can happen when you have sexual values that aren't in line necessarily with your sexual interests. Absolutely. Kind of like and, the, and sorry, you go ahead and finish it. Oh, I was just sorry. gonna say it's kind of like the the closeted gay man of the past, right? Yes. He yes. struggled to live that life, and it causes a lot of problems and distress. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that you're bringing up, like the you know sex addiction, going in and dealing with sex addiction. It, the same situation could be happening with two people, two different people that don't think of porn as being a bad thing, and it's never even thought yeah. that it would be sex addiction, yeah, right, or exactly, porn addiction. Exactly. So. Yeah. That never even crosses their mind, right? They're just like, oh, you're watching porn. <laughs> yeah, and, <laughs> and that, was, that was made very clear to me when I was invited to give a talk at um, sort of a sex-positive sexuality get-together. It's called Playground. It, I don't know if it still happens, but it was a thing that Toronto hosted over a couple of years, and just perverts would get together for a weekend <laughs> and talk about being perverts. And somebody... <laughs> And that group invited me to, to talk about my, my new interest in, in porn and relationships. So I talked about what I thought I knew at the time. And they're like, yeah, but like we all use porn and it's like not a thing. So what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. I was like, ah, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so one other thing that uh, I think this is probably your last thought. And Kyle, you can ask another question after this. But uh, Taylor, uh, I was just thinking about this the other night before. Uh, actually, last night I was talking about it. Uh, the idea that, you know, we, we talked about at the beginning of the episode, your behavior doesn't necessarily always match up with what you report, right? Uh, and so, and maybe what you consume. So, so when it comes to porn use, the type of porn you consume, right? So if you watch some unique porn, some, some more, you know, extravagant, more fetishized porn, uh, w does that actually predict your, your sexual behavior or sexual interests? Like, would you want to engage in those things that you're consuming in porn? Is I yeah. don't, I don't know. I, I suspect yes. Um, but like, I don't know. We live in a society with a lot of sort of norms and structures about what's okay and what's appropriate. Um, mm -hmm. you know, Justin Miller, who spends a lot more time thinking about fantasy and how that relates to behavior might be a better person to talk about it than, than me. Yeah. But, yeah. um, I can say that it does happen. Like one of the cases I like to think about when, um, these issues come up, uh, a number of years ago, I asked people who are in relationships where one partner or the other used porn to tell me about their experiences, and we, we wrote a paper about that. But one thing we asked about that we haven't really disseminated yet is, like, what are you using, Yeah. right? And in what context? So if people use porn alone, what are you using alone? If they used it with a partner, what are they using with a partner? And also, whether or not they hide anything of their personal use from their partner and what that thing is, right? Yeah, so yeah. One of the first cases in this, this data set, every time I open the file, I'm confronted with this guy who identifies as cisgendered heterosexual. We ask him about his solitary use. What are you using? Gay porn, like wall-to-wall, -wall, mm -hmm. all sorts of variations of gay porn, right? Mm -hmm. Do you hide anything from your partner? Yes. What do you hide? All of the gay stuff. <laughs> so everything that he uses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why? Yeah. Because I don't want her to think that I'm gay. Yeah. What do you use yeah. with your partner? Women friendly porn. Mm. Right. So this is a yeah. person that's living a life where clearly they have sexual interests um, mm -hmm. that are different from what they would probably uh, have fulfilled in their relationship. And yeah. um, 
Yeah, they're and as a consequence, they're lying about it to their partner, which probably right. isn't great for the relationship. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's complicated. I don't know. I don't know if it means like I know some people will tell you I fantasize about this, but I never do it in reality. But other people yeah. certainly fantasize about things that they aspire to. So I've, I don't know on the whole what that looks like. Yeah, absolutely. I can see it going both ways for sure. Right. And you'd be like, Oh, I'm just going to watch it. Cause I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to go to that level or, right. you know, I want to watch it cause I want to warm myself up to get to that point. <laughs> right. right? Exactly. Uh, I can see it going both ways for sure. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting conversation. I mean, all, this whole conversation has been interesting. So why don't we wrap it up here? We'll call it an episode. Um, I'd just like to, again, say thank you for joining us. Uh, it was insightful, educational, and I'm sure uh, those listening uh, will be delighted to, to be learning all about uh, your work and, and everything that we've been talking about to this point. Um, Taylor, how can people get in touch with you if they want to reach out and, and perhaps ask it, a question? If you want them to get in touch with you. If you uh, want them to get in touch with you. That's a good question. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm used to hate mail, so it's, it's totally <laughs> cool. If, if you want to tell me how much of a sleazeball I am, fine. If you want to follow up on something cool, uh, email is probably the best route. You can find me at T-A-Y-K-O-H-U-T at gmail.com. Mm. Um, outside of that, I'm on Twitter and I'm at Western Smart Lab. Um, if you want we'll to look link that, that up. as well. We'll yep. link that as well when we, cool. put, we publish the episode so that everybody Absolutely. can follow you as well. Yeah, I'm not super active on Twitter. I'm more of a lurker than a poster, but occasionally <laughs> I say things and whatever <laughs> well we'll uh when the uh when the episode comes out uh when we publish it on twitter we'll make sure that you're uh that you're referenced there so people can can catch up with you if they've got uh, uh some interesting questions and uh no hate mail if, yeah, I, well, if, if I hear that you've been sending him hate mail i'm coming after you so that's totally fine it, it comes with the territory um we like I, to think... it's obviously not my preference but like i said i'm used to it no, we like to do forward them yeah <laughs> Send them to us. We'll take care of it for you. <laughs> All right. All right. With that, we'll call it a we'll call it another episode. Um, if you've enjoyed, leave us a review, leave us a like, a star, whatever it is, on whatever platform you found us on. We're on Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So uh, make sure to track us down there. We're also on a host of other things that we're not really sure why we're there, and who knows. <laughs> but if you found us there, like us there, I suppose. Um, with that, uh, yeah, check us out. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and uh, Instagram, and our website. Man, I'm, I'm rusty at this drink. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. It has been a while. Anyways, um, you know where to find us, brainbusspodcast.com. There we'll have everything linked, and uh, you'll be able to catch uh, all of the interesting research that we'll publish uh, related to this particular episode, as well as other episodes. So if you've heard something that you liked, um, make sure to follow up there. Leave us a review, leave us a comment, send us an email. Uh, you can do so at the website as well. Anyways, uh, with that, we'll call it an episode. And until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.